would, look with me in John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first three verses today of John chapter 1. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Let's pray. Father, we can and desire to approach you this morning because of the word of God made flesh who came as our mediator, our prophet, priest, and king, our substitute, who lived in our place, died in our place, was raised from the grave in our place, ascended to your right hand, and sent his spirit to regenerate us, to seal us and indwell us. And we thank you And that's why we gather this morning. We pray this morning as we consider this glorious text, you would teach us more about this word, that we may behold him and believe even more. For we are like the man in Mark. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help our unbelief this morning. For the Son's sake. Amen. The true story of the world given to us in Scripture concerns the Lord's covenantal presence. Now, He's omnipresent, but we're speaking here of His special revelatory presence. The Lord's covenantal presence and His activity in the theater of His glory, which we know to be His created order. The rest of history is simply a stage that the Lord erects for that purpose. That's the true story of the world. However, the the culture's dominant sense of the way things are has a tendency to deceive us, to bewitch us, if you will, with other accounts of what's really important. As a result, we may think we are engaging in the real world But in fact, we're caught in what's been called the shadowlands. We're living in the shadows of the real world. And the reason we're so easily deceived is that in our natural state, we have a vision problem. We could diagnose it this way. We have a kind of a culturally induced myopia, nearsightedness that allows us to see only the physical world, the material world, immediately in front of us. As a result, often, much of what's going on through our heads and our affections is not the Lord's story, but some other story. Some mythological, illusory story that appears stunning. It appears stable. It appears secure and satisfying and significant but it's built on sinking sand that has a short termination date 
Let me just offer you one of countless examples that I've read about in the last couple of weeks. Many of the video games and apps for our smartphones are designed not only by software architects, but by applied psychologists and behavioral economists as well. Some of Silicon Valley's app designers study how, now listen to this, to create obsessive-compulsive patterns of behavior. That's what they're after. In their persuasive technology lab at Stanford. Now this persuasive technology lab was founded in 1998 by a man named B.J. Fogg. He's the founder of a field of study called CAPTOLOGY, which is an acronym for Computers as Persuasive Technology. And so here's what captologists do. They look for ways to capture people's imagination. They look for ways to capture people's emotions, their affections, their loves in order to cultivate patterns of behavior that center on the app. That's just one of countless ways the world seeks to deceive us and to, to bring us under its sway, which I would submit places a new spin on Paul's warning to not be held captive by empty deceit. Colossians 2 verse 8. But because of spiritual myopia, that is, nearsightedness, we're so easily drawn in by it. We're so easily deceived by it. Uh, this is illustrated in the novel The Silver Chair. And so in the silver chair, the queen of Underland is holding three persons captive. Jill, Eustace, and Puddleglum. And, and she tries to convince them that there is no other world outside of her cavern. So she creates conditions conducive to sleepiness. She plays soft music. She dims the lights. She makes sure there are pleasant smells. And then she seeks to sway them with a false story of the world. And here's what she says to them. There is no land called Narnia. There never was any world but mine. And so all of a sudden, Puddleglum comes to some degree of senses and he puts his feet in the fire to sober him, to wake him up to what she's doing. And so she's, he's sobered, he's alert to, the, to this wicked queen's deception what she's trying to do is substitute her artificial world for the real and the enduring and the beautiful world of Narnia. And I'd submit to you, that's one of the central purposes of the Word of God. To sober us. To alert us to the central purposes of God's world. And I would say that John 1, verses 1 to 18, is no exception to that to waken us up, to awaken us to the cultural, if you could say, subterfuge that's going on. That's seeking for our souls as much as any other thing. 
And what the Word of God does is it, it, it recenters us back onto ultimate reality, on what the Lord is doing, uh, His presence in the world, His activity in the world, in the theater of His glory, which we know is centered on the person of the Son of God. And John writes this so that we would believe that. He says that in John 20. We write these things so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And by believing, you would have eternal life. You would have life in His name. In fact, everything John writes, he writes towards that end so that we would be delivered from imposter stories, from phantom stories, shadow stories, mythological stories that demand our soul and take our lives. So to accomplish that goal, we're going to look at John 1, 1 to 18 over the next three weeks. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3 today. Now like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John gives us an account of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew and Luke begins with his birth. Mark jumps immediately to the ministry of John the Baptist. But as Eric preached so well last week, Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus came. And the incarnation, that is the Son of God putting on flesh and blood, is certainly contained in that glorious phrase. John begins by showing the Son of God embarking on a journey. But it's not a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's a journey from existing eternally with the Father to becoming a human. And that brings us to the first point of this passage. We see in verses 1 and 2, the Word and God. Now look with me in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Could there be a more profound way to begin a book than when these words? It, it's simply a beautiful and glorious mountain peak verse. Or better said, three mountain peaks in one verse. Notice with me in the first phrase, in the beginning was the word. Now this takes us back where? To the opening line of our canon, of our Bible. Of course, John is writing in a post-fall context. He's writing in a context where sin has entered the world through one man, our federal head, Adam. So what is John doing with these words? Why is he borrowing from Moses? Well, he is signaling that with the coming of this word, we have another Genesis. We have a new beginning. In other words, John is writing about not an original creation. He's writing about a new creation. A recreation that is centered on and brought about by this word that he's writing about. But it's also driving home here that 
this word isn't to be included among created things. He is distinct from the created order because in the beginning was the word. The word existed before creation in eternity past with God. This word shares in God's eternity. It's a very important point. He existed with God before creation. And that's why Jesus, we know, the night before the cross and the priestly prayer in John 17, prays this in verse 5. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world. Now the word here for word, in the beginning was the word, is the word logos. Now it's a philosophically loaded term. John uses this term, logos, 40 times in his gospel. But the one fact that's most significant for understanding what John meant by the logos, he's not borrowing from pagan philosophy. He's taking it on. This is a polemic against pagan philosophy. If you want to know how John is using this term, logos, word, you have to consider his context, which was the, what we know as the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, we see the use of the word in three broad ways. And I want to look at those real quickly. First of all, we see that God's word is and was active and powerful in God's creating of all things, ex nihilo, out of nothing. In fact, eight times in Genesis 1, we read this phrase, and God said. God spoke creation out of nothing by word. Secondly, God's word in the Old Testament reveals and God's word redeems. So God speaks to reveal his person, to reveal his character, to reveal his ways, to reveal his expectations, his purposes, to guide his people. And God redeems and he delivers and he judges through his word. All through the Bible, in fact, God accomplishes everything by his word. That's why we have a word-centered ministry. Anything of any enduring value in a church will come by the word. So, for instance, Isaiah 55 tells us, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and does not return there, but makes the earth spring forth in bud, so shall my word accomplish my good purpose. It shall give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. And he says, and by this word, he will turn the thorn bushes into cypress trees. That's new creation language. Thorn bushes representing the fallen order. Or how about this? Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his word and he healed them. And so God's word was the means by which God brought about creation out of nothing. God's word is the means by which God reveals and redeems. 
Thirdly, in the Old Testament, God's Word is so closely identified with God that Scripture presents His Word as eternal. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, Lord, Your Word is fixed in the heavens. And so especially in creation, revelation, and redemption, God gives Himself to us by giving us His Word. And now we know this Word is a person. But John goes further in his identification of this Word. In the beginning, notice, was the Word, and the Word was with God. In other words, the the Logos, who became a person, a man, is no mere personification of God, but a person who existed from all eternity with God. And so the Word is more than just a revelation of God's thoughts. All right? He's a person. A person distinguishable from God. Which we know from verse 18, when John writes of God here in verse 1, in that second phrase, he's referring to the Father. And yet, notice, in the third mountain peak of this verse... You didn't know there was so much in this one verse, did you? The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Those are important verbs. Was and with. Very important. So much theology there. What God was, the Word was, John tells us. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. Co-equal, yet distinct. In other words, there's a distinction as well as an identity between the Word and God. Now this verse clearly defends against the heresy known as Arianism. Chris Siebert taught us a few Wednesday nights ago on Athanasius, who was one of the great warriors going against Arius. It's a very important discussion. Indeed, this heresy is so dangerous because if you're going to be saved, you, you have to be saved and can only be saved by God himself. And so, this heresy is so important that... It was behind the first church council in church history. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It really began around 318 when this preacher named Arius began to preach that the Father alone is God. Yes, Jesus is a a high being. In fact, he's the greatest of all created beings. And he is more like God than any other being. But he is not equal with God. Prior to Dan Brown's heretical book, Da Vinci Code, 
a book that sold millions of copies. Blockbuster movie came out of that uh, book. There really weren't many in our day who'd even heard of the Council of Nicaea. Unfortunately, that book asserts that Christians never considered Jesus to be God until the Council of Nicaea. In fact, chapter 55 of the the book fills us in as teeming enlightens Sophie. Constantine needed to strengthen the new Christian tradition and held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. A mortal. Sophie, apparently stunned at this revelation, stammers, not the Son of God, to which Teabing replies, right. Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Now Sophie is flabbergasted. Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? And then Dan Brown has his character put the exclamation point on what he said. A relatively close vote at that. Well, there's so many problems with that. Though millions and millions of people are reading that as if it's history. The first problem with that is that we don't know exactly how many pastors were at that council. But every historian will tell you there were somewhere between 220 and 318 pastors there. But we do know how many denied the deity of Christ at that council. Two. Arius' friends. In fact, Eusebius, the first church historian, was there. And he journaled it. And he wrote about looking in that room and seeing so many of the pastors in that room with visible scars that were a result of having been persecuted and beaten for their defense of the gospel and for the divinity and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Dan Brown writes is just fake news. The second and most problematic issue with that statement that Jesus was voted in as God and that no one considered him as deity until the fourth century is that the entire Bible teaches that he is God, a very God. In fact, because John 1 verse 1 is so clear on the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, this verse has long come under attack. Today, Arius' argument is picked up by the Jehovah Witnesses. So much so that when you see a Jehovah's Witness lips moving, you hear the hiss of Arius himself. And what they argue is that the definite article, the word the, is found before the term word, but not before the word God. 
And so they say this should be translated, the Word was a God, but not the God. So what do we do with that? Well, first of all, it's clear from verse 3, verse 18, and many other places, that John intends to identify Jesus as God. How about his epistle, 1 John 5, verse 20? He is the true God and eternal life. Or when Thomas, after Jesus reveals himself to him, says, My Master, my Lord, my God. Second, John was a monotheistic Jew, which meant that he believed the Shema. There is only one God. He would have hardly referred to a mere created being as a God. Third, the word God is often found in the New Testament referring to God in the fullest sense without a definite article. It's not just one, verse one we see that. In fact, we see it three other times in John 1 alone. Verse six, there was a man sent from God. Right there, there's no definite article. Verse 13 Born, not the will of man, but of God. No definite article. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. No definite article. Fourth, if he wrote, if John wrote, the word was the God. If he had put a definite article in verse 1, that would be identifying Jesus with God in such a way that would make him indistinguishable from the Father and from the Holy Spirit, who are also persons of the Godhead. Indeed, his point here is to identify the Word of God, but also as being distinct from God, the Father. Fifth, finally, if John meant that Jesus was godlike, as Arius and the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, but not truly God, there was a perfectly good Greek word he could have used. If you were to spell this in English, it's the adjective theos. T H E I O S. It's an adjective that says that describes someone as godlike. But that's not the term he uses. He uses the term theos, God. And so John makes very clear that Jesus, to use the language, the Council of Nicaea is homoousios, of the same nature, the same substance with the Father. And yet there's distinction. And to drive this distinction home, in the Godhead, he adds in verse 2, notice, he was in the beginning with God. Now, literally, you would translate this, the Word was face to face with God. The Word, who was with God, 
and was God, was face to face with God. Now, nothing added, nothing is added in this verse from verse 1, but two points, I think, are repeated from verse 1 because John is emphasizing something. The first thing he's emphasizing is that the eternity of the Word of God isn't to be dismissed, isn't to be denied or overlooked or minimized. Second, the Father and the Word are not the same, but they belong together. Distinct, but with perfect harmony. Now, some would deny that these are distinct persons. Now, I've already dealt with Arianism. It's a real problem. If you believe what Arius taught and what Jehovah's Witnesses teach, you cannot be a Christian. But another issue we see today is this notion that instead of seeing the Father and the Son as distinct, they teach that the Father and the Son are different modes are manifestations of the undifferentiated God. And so you'll sometimes hear, and I've, I've heard it growing up, someone pray, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. The Father didn't die. The Son of God died on the cross. You see, while a person can be by himself, a person cannot be with himself, nor face to face with himself. John 1, verse 1, tells us that the Son is with the Father, the Word is with God. Verse 2 says he is face to face with the Word, or with the Father. So this alone crushes the heresy of what is known as modalism, which was taught in a book, a novel called The Shack. It's a heresy. This view, modalism, proposes that while the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God, nonetheless, God manifests Himself in only one person at a time. And so God then successively becomes, the Father becomes the Son, who then becomes the Spirit. Unfortunately, it's the most common heresy in the Western church today. And the consequences are horrific. The consequences are eternal. First of all, you're talking about a false god. That's the first consequence of believing modalism. It's not our God, the God revealed in Scripture. The second consequence is if the Son is not a real person who can stand before the Father and address Him, then the concept of substitutionary satisfaction is by necessary. It's, it's, it's absent. There's no concept of substitution. Because in substitution, the Son is our substitute, our representative, our advocate to the Father. And without three persons in the Godhead, we have no advocate which is bad news for us all. No modalist teaches substitution. It's 
impossible. And so equality and yet distinction. That is verses 1 and 2 in a nutshell. That prepares us for verse 3. So we've seen the Word and God. In verse 3, we see the Word and creation. He says, all things, verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Now we recognize, now this is an important point in Trinitarian discussions. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in creation, revelation, and salvation. No person of the Godhead sits any of those out. All right? And yet there's distinctions in roles in creation, revelation, and redemption. But there is an inseparable operation in the Godhead. They're all on the same page. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so here, John says, everything owes its existence to the Word. That's not to say the Father was not involved in creation. It's not to say the Spirit. The Father is, you could say, the architect. The Son, the agent. The Spirit, the administrator. But here we see clearly that Jesus is the agent of creation. As Paul would write in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. In other words, everything we see in the created order was created for the Christ. Now, in the Jewish worldview... And I'm not talking about the intertestamental period of Judaism where it had been corrupted. The Jewish worldview that we understand from the Old Testament, one thing that distinguished God, one of many things, but one thing that distinguished God as unique from everything else, including the false gods, was that He was the sole creator of all things. So, for instance, in Isaiah now, Isaiah, what, what's Isaiah doing? In, in his book, he's trying to, in uh, chapters 40 to 48, he's distinguishing between the true and living God, Yahweh, and all these false gods that Israel has, fall, has fallen privy to. And he says in Isaiah 44, 24, I am the Lord, this is God speaking through the pen of Isaiah, who made all things. So there Yahweh made all things. Who stretched out, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. I was the only one doing it. Angels weren't involved. This was a work of Yahweh the Lord. And the fact that the Lord was the creator of all things, the people of God knew that He was their sole help and sole hope. We fall into problems when we lose sight of that. He is our sole help and our sole hope. Our hope's not in the creation. It's not. It's not. The creation is so volatile and it's under the curse. Why would you find your hope in something under a curse? 
Psalm 146, verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. He's our help. Whose hope is the Lord, his God. Help and hope. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Because he is the creator of all things, he is our sole help and hope. Our problems come when we lose our help and hope source. We develop it. Amnesia for these things. And because he's our help, because he's our hope, and because his work of creation distinguishes him from everything else, he alone is worthy of our worship. And that's why John will write later in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is worthy of our worship. And therein lies the problem. Therein lies our great dilemma. Because not one of us gives him the worship that he is due. Not one of us loves him in a manner that comports with his glory. Paul says that our real tendency is to serve the creation, the creature, rather than the creator. And there's no greater sin. There's no greater sin than refusing to give him the glory that he's due. And let me just tell you this. Every sin we commit in our body, from our attitudes, our, our mouths, our tongues, our, our divisiveness, our slander, our, our judgments on other people, our jealousies, our discontentments, our ingratitude, all of that is the fruit of looking to the creation for something only the Creator can give. Because the creation will frustrate you every time. That is our problem. And it's bad news. Because it's epidemic. It's universal. But here's the good news of Christmas. That's why the Word came. That's why the Word of God came. He came for us as the Lord of a new creation. John expects us to read those first words, in the beginning was the Word. And for the Spirit to work in us, provoke us to cry, Hallelujah! Because we're so broken. Of course, no text in John. It's a gospel. Remember this. This is not good advice. It's a gospel, which means it's good news. It's something that's being accomplished for us. It's not something I do. No passage in John can be divorced from the end of the book, which centers on the cross and the resurrection of this word. After all, it's a gospel. Indeed, you, you could say that the entirety of John is in some way showing us why we need a Messiah who will be crucified and raised from the grave. We need a Messiah who will take on our sin. 
and take the punishment that we deserve for our lack of worship of the true and living God. And not only does this cross reveal the heinous of our sin, so does the incarnation itself. Listen to these words from J.C. Ryle as we close. Would we know for one thing the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Now listen, here's one of the real issues. The reason we have problems with so many people is that we think they need Jesus more than we need Jesus. All right? And, and, and this, the incarnation reminds us we're all messed up. The incarnation reveals, J.C. Ross says, the heinousness of sin. Let us often read these verses. Let us mark what kind of being the Redeemer of mankind needs to be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. If no one less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world. You see what he's saying there? Sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. He's saying if it required the eternal God to take on human flesh, that shows you how heinous our sin is. If Christ is so great, then sin must indeed be sinful. But then he says, let us mark that the Savior is one able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by Him. He that was with God and was God is also Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. May our spiritual myopia, our nearsightedness, where we are fixated on the created things, be reversed. May we be delivered from the shadowlands. May the true story of the world be the story that we embed our dead end characters in. That's why John writes this to us. And another means towards that end is the table, the Lord's Supper. It is a glorious means by which we are reminded every time we partake there's only one story that will endure in the end. And for those of you that are visiting with us, we would love for you to participate with us, partake upon a couple of conditions. First, you have been born again. You've been born by the Word. You have trusted in the Word. You recognize that you are a sinner. The incarnation reminding us of what was required to save us from our sins. The cross reminding us of what was required of, to save us from our sins. And you recognize that because the Spirit has illumined you to that, convicted you of that. And you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone, the Word of God made flesh, who died on the cross to pay God's, pay the sin debt in full that we owe. 
And you are baptized member of a like-minded church. A church that believes that gospel. We would ask you to partake with us here at the table. But before we partake, let us go to the Lord and ask Him to repair our hearts that we may, may not come to the table in an unworthy way. Let's bow our heads. That they had done the insurrections, the rebellion. And maybe David was musing on this when he wrote Psalm 103. Maybe he was musing on these very events. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And, and this grace provokes Abner to preach the kingdom of David. When grace has taken hold, you don't have to have your arm twisted to evangelize. It's the knee-jerk response. And maybe more, maybe more surprising than Abner preaching the kingdom of David is the welcome Abner receives from David. We close here, verses 20 to 21. Notice this. The strengthening of the peaceable kingdom and feasting with the king. Remarkable imagery here. Verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. The same Abner who was a rebel? And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in shalom. He went in peace. The peaceable kingdom. Quite a remarkable. Besides the example that David is to us of Romans at 12, 18. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as David is an example to us of learning to wait on the Lord, promise-driven waiting, knowing that God knows what he's doing, we can trust him in his timing with his purposes and plans for us. Besides all that, this is a beautiful this is a glorious picture of the king treating Abner not as an enemy, but as an honored guest in the royal residence. The king prepares a feast for this former enemy. No condemnation for this former enemy. David is treating Abner not on the basis of his past, but on his grace. This is another hint of the nature of the kingdom of God and the true king. Former insurrectionists, former rebels, finding peace. The history of Abner's relationship with David could have been described in these words from Colossians 1.21, the apostle Paul. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. That was Abner to David. Most recently, he was the main reason for the civil war in chapter 2 that we read saw last, year, last week. But now he's reconciled. Not by his own merits. He deserves nothing. But by the goodness of David. 
You were alienated in enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. Of course, the reconciliation that David secured only cost David to swallow his pride. That's all it cost him. David swallowed his pride, and he reconciled with Adonai. But the greater reconciliation achieved by the greater David, where we are reconciled to God, required him not to drink, to swallow his pride, because he had none. It required him to drink the cup of God's wrath on our wicked pride. And this text drives home, as Paul says in Colossians 1, yet now he has reconciled you through the body of his flesh through death. And this text drives home that because the king absorbs the debt that we owe, there's no one here beyond the grace of God. There's plenty of Abners here. All of us were at one time Abners. Rebels to the king, rebels to the kingdom, believing that we had a better way. And this text drives home, there's grace for you. There's reconciliation. As Jesus will later say, Matthew 8, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at table. Who are the east and the west? Those are the Gentile nations who are in rebellion to God's kingdom. They will come and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the peaceable kingdom. But it's only for those who come to the king on his terms. And what are his terms? Repentance. Repentance towards God. Repentance of your sin and faith in the king. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who secured our reconciliation by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Old Testament that's preparing us for the glory and the beauty of the coming King, the one that we celebrate today. We pray this word would just take root in the hearts of every person here. Pray for those who are living in sin right now, that they would repent of their sin and submit to King Jesus. And I pray for those who haven't been saved, that today they would trust in King Jesus. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.